Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books and Literary Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Kathleen de Guzman, a co-host on the channel. Today, I will be talking to Latha Reddy. Latha is assistant professor in the English department at Howard University in Washington, D.C., where she teaches classes on British and Anglophone colonial and post-colonial literatures. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Kathleen de Guzman, a co-host on the channel. Today, I will be talking to Latha Reddy. Latha is assistant professor in the English department at Howard University in Washington, D.C., where she teaches classes on British and Anglophone colonial and post-colonial literatures. She is also the author of a new book titled British Empire and the Literature of Rebellion, Revolting Bodies, Laboring Subjects, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you, Latha, for joining me today to talk about your new book. Thank you for having me. I thought we'd get started by asking you to describe how you came to this project. Uh, Sure. Uh, So this new book actually extends and uh, expands my uh, initial interest in 19th century British imperialism. So most of my earlier work focused on English language texts, especially poetic productions, uh, by South Asians uh, during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and through that, I actually uh, became interested, I began to read a lot about and became interested in the Sepoy Rebellion of 1857, which um, was a constitutive event for the British Empire in that region. And um, in my research on the rebellion, I noticed a number of references uh, to discussions of rebellions that took place the following decade in the 1860s in Jamaica and Ireland. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I began to research uh, those two rebellions, the Moran Bay Rebellion of 1865 in Jamaica and then um, the Fenian Rebellion of 1867 in Ireland. And I uh, realized that there were striking parallels among um, these three sort of roughly contemporaneous rebellions. Um, you know, they were separated only by a decade. Um, and that these rebellions... Um, in the 1950s and 60s were constitutively different um, from any of the revolts against British authority that had come before this period. So I, in this book, I tried to, I set out to understand why that's the case. Right. So uh, your book examines uh, three uh, very different uh, colonies. Uh, India was uh, British, Britain's uh, largest colony and also linked for so long uh, to the East India Company, which Mm -hmm. was sort of, you know, a a weird mix between being a corporation and also uh, a militarized uh, force. And you also uh, look at uh, Jamaica, which is in the Caribbean and as a colony was propelled by the institution of slavery and forcibly imported labor from uh, Africa. Uh, Finally, Ireland is known as uh, Britain's uh, internal colony. So uh, what unites these three places uh, aside from their link to Britain in your book and these rebellions? Um, I think oftentimes... uh these colonies uh, are studied separately. Mm -hmm. And um, I was interested uh, in a comparative focus because 
because these rebellions were happening roughly around the same time and the discourses surrounding the rebellions uh, took on some striking parallels, um, I realized that what was at stake in each of these three colonies um, that uh, necess necessitated a sort of um, comparative approach was the idea that they were um, revolting against um, a larger sort of structural transformation in British colonial uh, or British imperialism. Um, and so this larger structural transformation was the incursion of British um, imperial industrial capitalism into the colonies. And so uh, for me, this allows for uh, an exploration of some of the similarities between the three colonies, despite the very different ways in which they were governed, despite the very different historical context of each of the three colonies, um, and despite, you know, in some cases, the very different trajectories that they would take in terms of uh, later national independence and um, uh, quote-unquote evolution into the post-colonial state. Right. And I mean, while, while reading your chapter on uh, the Sepoy Rebellion, for example, I was uh, struck by how, uh, I mean, one could even draw parallels to uh, what happened to uh, Haiti after the Haitian Revolution and how, you know, the new nation of Haiti was forced to pay uh, reparations to, to France for the, mm -hmm. the lost uh, sugar plantations. And when you brought up uh, how... Uh, there was also a, a relationship of uh, debt after uh, the 1857 rebellion that made me think of, you know, what could possibly happen if we expand, um, you know, our comparative focus even beyond the, the British Empire. Right, exactly. I think we, we can see parallels in a number of uh, cases um, in terms of uh, imperialist imperialist or neo-imperialist uh, rule, whether by Britain or other European countries or the United States. Um, I think some of the after effects um, or the legacies of imperial capitalism um, are very similar in all of these uh, colonies. Right, right. So I want to dig into, uh, I guess, the actual book a little bit more. So could you tell us more about the significance of the book's title, particularly the part uh, after the colon, uh, Revolting bodies, laboring subjects. Uh, your introduction, for example, uh, digs into how the term uh, revolting means more than one thing for your argument. The subtitle is actually, I think, where I locate the heart of the book. Um, like you said, this idea of revolting is really uh, important for the book itself. So uh, in my work, I what I came to see was that these three rebellions, um, which were invariably read as proto-nationalist uprisings uh, by Nationalist, nationalist elites in India, Jamaica, and Ireland uh, during the late 19th and well into the 20th centuries was actually taking place, like I mentioned, um, during a cru crucial historical juncture. Um, so this historical juncture was when British industrial capital like I said, was making incursions into the colonies in, use, in search of new sources of wage labor. Um, so in light of this, these rebellions, um, or I came to see these rebellions as not necessarily nationalist per se, but as flashpoints for um, organized resistance by the colonized against British imperial capitalism, um, especially in British imperial capitalism's attempts to transform the oppressed colonized worker into a laboring subject. Um, and by laboring subject, I mean um, a subject that's produced by his or her role as a wage earner or um, essentially as a, a source of labor power for capitalist accumulation. So 
the subtitle of the book, Revolting Bodies, Laboring Subjects, um, is really important for me because it points for me to the ways in which the revolting body of the colonies was um, reacting against the push to reconfigure him um, or her as a laboring subject for British imperial capitalism. Um, and so I read revolting throughout the book as a verb, um, this idea of resistance, um, among the colonized against uh, colonial rule, um, especially imperial capitalist uh, transfigurations of colonial subjects into laboring subjects. Um, but I also read revolt here as an adjective, um, as inspiring disgust um, among the British due to differences of race, religion, um, culture, etc. So for me, uh, the revolting bodies here are significant because uh, colonized bodies are not only read as disgusting or other um, by the British, by British imperialist capitalist discourse, but they inspire fear because of the possibility of uh, resistance that they present as well. Right, right. And to, to dig into uh, the, the topic of uh, terms a little bit more, um, I mean, rebellion, uprising, uh, what are the stakes of naming resistance as such, particularly when reflecting on the past? Uh, one text you examine in relation to uh, the Sepoy Rebellion, for example, is a 1909 text that identifies the rebellion as uh, the Indian War of Independence. Yeah, this uh, text is uh, really interesting because um, Sarvakar's text uh, is one of uh, the I think one of the earliest uh, English language texts to deal with the rebellion and to cast it in these proto-nationalist terms. And um, in doing so, he radically revises uh, British imperial uh, discourse, which had previously cast the rebellion as a mutiny. In historical accounts, even today, um, the Sepoy rebellions often term the Sepoy mutiny. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, I think there's a distinction um, between mutiny, between calling an event a mutiny versus calling an event a rebellion. So mutiny implies um, a disregard for legitimate authority, uh, whereas a rebellion, um, I think, recasts that and tries to um, understand it as a legitimate um, uprising against illegitimate authority. Um, and so Sarvakar's text is... Um, also complicated for various reasons, um, you know, because even as he's trying to recast imperialist uh, discourse and trying to see the rebellion in proto-nationalist terms, he also is very invested in transforming the Indian rebel into um, sort of a proper revolutionary subject. And this proper revolutionary subject is to eventually become a proper uh, nationalist subject. And so, um, you know, He's also has sort of his own investments um, in constructing um, an Indian nation um, that is, as you know, he would write in later accounts um, based on, uh, you know, very defined terms, for example, um, you know, as a Hindu nation. Um, and so it's it's a complicated response, but it's, it's also a very sort of radical rewriting of uh, British uh, historiography on the event. That, uh, I mean, hearing you elaborate a little bit more on that uh, 1909 text, uh, the Indian War of Independence actually, uh, for me, brings up a question about uh, 
your archive. So these uh, mm -hmm. rebellions, uh, you know, they generated so much writing, both uh, when they happened and afterward as well. So with, with all, with that proliferation of uh, text available, uh, what guided your approach to uh, these archives for these uh, three different uh, rebellions? Yeah, it was um, very difficult to narrow text down. As I started reading, there were so many things that, um, so many, so much writing um, surrounding each of the three rebellions, so much writing about the rebellions, um, so much writing related to or discussing the rebellions from a later uh historical standpoint that um, it took sort of a great deal of effort for me to call down the uh, the text that I wanted to look at, uh, just because everything was so interesting. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, when I was attempting to um, sort of understand um, a way to organize uh, my discussions on the rebellions around this issue of the transformation of the colonial um, body or the revolting body into a laboring subject, um, I sort of focused on this idea of the consummate metaphor. Um, so I organized each chapter, um, and each of the three main chapters focuses on one of the three rebellions around a central concept metaphor. So essentially a concept metaphor, um, which I draw from um, Derrida's uh, discussion in white mythologies is um, sort of a trope that produces the abstract idea it's meant to explain um, uh, in the process of explaining it itself. So, uh, for example, the first chapter on the Sepoy Rebellion is organized around the concept metaphor of the machine and it's uh, and everything that's associated with the machine. So ideas of rationality, of uh, regularity, science, uh, progress, civilization, industry, um, capitalist development, et cetera, et cetera. So this concept metaphor of the machine was used in discourses about Indian labor um, at the time and, um, you know, up until now. Um, it was also used in discourses about the Indian colonial state um, and the British technologies that were introduced to India at the time. Um, and in that process, they also helped produce the idea of the Indian labor as shaped by 18th century mechanical philosophy. So this idea of the mind-body divide, um, they helped produce this idea of the colonial state as a regulated structure um, that was powered by the army um, and powered by a bureaucracy. Um, and it also helped produce uh, various colonial technologies in the form of uh, railways and telegraphs and prisons and guns, which were introduced to India um, in the mid-19th century. Um, and the idea that these technologies were rationalized and regularized and uh, represented civilizational progress that the British were bringing to India. Um, and in this way, this concept metaphor of the machine also fundamentally because it was present at the time in discourses about India, also ends up fundamentally shaping discourses about the Sepoy Rebellion itself. So the rebels, for example, um, the first round of uh, rebels uh, in the Sepoy Rebellion were Sepoys in the employ of the British Army, were often cast as um, revolting due to racial and religious differences. But the reason for the rebellion uh, that was often given in uh, British history his historical accounts was that the animal fat used to grease the cartridges used by the sepoys um, violated indigenous religious injunctions. Mm -hmm. um, so in these British accounts then, um, you know, rather than changes to the positions of the sepoys themselves, um, you know, economic conditions for the peasants supporting them, uh, land grabbing by the British, um, 
you know, of uh, Indian um, leaders supporting the rebellion. British historical accounts focus on this idea of the cartridge as greased by animal fat as the primary motivator for rebellion. Um, and so this allows them to um, cast the uh, Indian rebels as irrational, atavistic, um, you know, especially in their destruction of property, um, you know, because the rebels were uh, destroying telegraph lines and railways, um, you know, had uh, requisitioned arms. And so their use of technology, rather than um, showing their own use, their own rationality, was then cast by the British as irrational, um, as sort of a civilizational um, backwardness. Um, so, uh because of this constant metaphor, I noticed that uh, within uh, indigenous, indigenous accounts of the rebellions um, by Indians uh, sympathetic to the rebels and writing about the rebellion, um, the onus was on them to recast the rebellion as either a rational act um, to show how the machinery of the state is uh, less far-reaching than it's believed to be, or to show how the retribution enacted by the British um, in the aftermath of the rebellion was itself irrational because it was ill-considered and uh, depended more on passion rather than um, any notion of justice or fair play. Um, and so this idea of the constant metaphor structures each of the chapters. So for the chapter on the Sepoy Rebellion in India, the constant metaphor of the machine uh, structures the text that I looked at. Um, insofar as this idea comes up in the text, um, the text uh, sort of deal with this idea um, and provide a, a sort of a larger language in which to look at, um, you know, the issues surrounding the Sepoy Rebellion and uh, the issues surrounding the Sepoy Rebellion. Um, in the chapter on uh, Jamaica, the concept metaphor that I focus on is that of the spirit. And then um, in Ireland, the concept metaphor that I focus on is that of uh, the cell, the cell form. And so these concept metaphors were sort of a crucial organizing strategy for the book um, and um, sort of helped me see some of the larger trends and themes and um, issues that were at stake for each of these individual rebellions, as well as the historical context surrounding each of those individual rebellions. Uh, so you already kind of elaborated on uh, the significance of the concept metaphor of uh, the machine in your discussion of, of India. So could you go ahead and also talk a little bit about uh, the significance of uh, you know the spirit in, in the Jamaica chapter and of the cell when you get to the uh, Fenian Rebellion? Mm -hmm. So uh, the second chapter on the Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica uh, is organized around the concept metaphor of the spirit. Um, so insofar as... Uh, Spirit-based Afro-Caribbean syncretic religions um, during that time played a crucial role in colonized resistance um, against this new regime of biopower, um, which I claim that British capital, imperial capitalism is forwarding um, in all of its colonies during this period. Um, and so uh, this idea of the spirit is um, important because it comes um, out of Jamaican resistance itself. Um, there was a discussion, um, you know, in the text. There's a lot of discussion in the historical text about uh, two of the leaders, uh, or the leader, one of the leaders of the um, Moran Bay Rebellion, Paul Bogle, um, hosting a feasting ritual, for example, before the uh, rebellion itself, um, a spirit feasting ritual before the rebellion itself. Um, 
In addition, uh, the recent event of the Haitian Revolution, which um, we had talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, acted as a haunting presence uh, in both uh, imperialist and anti-imperialist understandings of the Morant Bay Rebellion and of rebellion general, more generally in the Caribbean. So um, as I try to show, the Haitian Rebellion is this constant... Uh, sort of ghostly presence um, for all discussions of rebellion within the region um, at that time and well after that time as well. Um, and then lastly, uh, the labor rebellions of the 1930s, which are read by some historians as a successor to the Moran Bay Rebellion, represent sort of a spirit of an age. Um, and so I saw this idea of the spirit as really central to um, the Morant Bay Rebellion and discussions about some of the issues that arose during the Morant Bay Rebellion, um, you know, which in some ways can be read essentially as um, a form of a labor rebellion, um, also a rebellion against um, a a rebellion focused on land. Um, And so uh, the spirit becomes a sort of grounding idea for this chapter. Um, And the third chapter on the Fenian Rebellion in Ireland is organized around the concept metaphor of the cell. So uh, contemporary discussions of the biological cell um, sort of flourished in the 19th century um, with all these discoveries in um, uh, sort of the way the cell works. Um, And so this idea of the biological cell um, influenced a lot of discussions of Irish overpopulation, for example. Um, so not only had the Great Famine um, occurred within the lifetime of most of the Fenians who took part in the life, um, who took part in the Fenian Rebellion, but um, the destruction wrought by the Great Famine was often tied by some of the more radical Irish commentators that I looked at at. Um, the time to British imperial policies on uh, food, land, and the poor. Um, The uh, biological cell was also used to explain um, Irish ethnic or racial and religious differences, right? The fact that they were seen as uh, less than white or not quite white, Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the fact that they were also Catholic. Um, So that otherness, um, you know, in turn supposedly explained the Irish as criminals, um, inhabitants, you know, of prison cells or terrorists, right, Uh, participants in terrorist cells or networks. And so this recourse to biology and, and eugenics to explain sort of Irish difference in criminality and to justify the exploitation of their labor and land was sort of a constant refrain in the text from that period. Um, And then lastly, the fact that Marx uh, sort of very famously in um, the first volume of uh, Capital analogizes the most fundamental unit of capitalist economy, the commodity form, to a cell, I think is really revealing in a lot of ways. Um, Since industrial capitalism, you know, of course, relies on the transformation of um, certain groups of people like the poor um, or the colonized or the racialized and gendered other um, into biological specimens um, who then are sort of pressed into service as labor powers. So in other words, revolting bodies who are transfigured into laboring or who are attempted to be transfigured into laboring subjects. Um, And so those are the three uh, concept metaphors that sort of organize each of the rebellions in each of the chapters in the book. Yeah, I think each one is such a, a, a rich uh, organizing device for, you know, drawing out the, the parallels between uh, these uh, rebellions that, you know, as you said at the outset, usually aren't put in conversation with one another. 
And uh, another organizing device throughout the entire book is something that uh, you mentioned uh, at the outset of uh, the response that you gave me just now, and that is the term uh, biopower. So uh, mm-hmm. biopower is a key idea throughout uh, throughout the book, and at the same time, uh, the colonized context that you examine suggests a need to slightly depart from the work of uh, central figures in biopower, such as you know, writing by Foucault or Agamben. Uh, so, what does biopower therefore mean for your book, particularly as uh, wielded by uh, the colonized or by the revolting bodies? Um, yeah, that's biopower. Um, I is really important, as you said, is really important for the book because I see, um, essentially, I see what. Um, the, this new structural transformation that's happening in British um, imperialism at the time as driven by a new regime of biopower. And so I read biopower here more generally as um, an investment in control over the life of the species, um, as Foucault talks about, and um, the disciplining of the individual body by the state, but also by corporations um, or by capital inclusion with the state. And so as you said, uh, discussions of the colonies are often left outside of uh, theoretical discussions of biopower. Um, and so it became important to me to sort of think through the ways in which biopower becomes transformed or transfigured in its application to colonial subjects. Um, and so in order to understand that, I sort of focus on some key uh, theoretical texts by uh, uh thinkers of biopolitics um, in each of the chapters. And so um, the uh, chapter on the Fenian Rebellion in Ireland, for example, I look at the work of uh, Roberto Esposito uh, in BIOS on this idea of um, immunity and immunization. Um, And I think about the ways in which um, this idea of immunization can be applied to um, an internal colony um, as Ireland is, right? So um, his contention that um, uh, a virus needs to be both um, uh, taken into a body, but then also ejected from it, um, I think serves as a really useful metaphor for an internal colony, but then also must be sort of rethought to... um, sort of to apply to that internal colony. Um, and so the way in which I um, think about it is that it, the, this idea of immunization sort of um, not only is the way for the British Empire to protect itself against foreign threats, right, against Irish terrorists, for example, but essentially at the end it also serves as a way to contract the British imperial state inadvertently. So by ejecting Irish terrorists, for example, by sending them off uh, to exile in Australia or the U.S., um, it's also not only contracting its population, but it also actively contracts the sort of the scope of the state itself, right? It would lose Ireland as um, uh, a colony in uh, the 1920s and then uh, Northern Ireland with the peace-sharing agreement in 1998. So um, uh, Esposito's uh, discussion, uh, while I found it very fruitful, I think sort of needs some thinking through in its application to a colonial context. Um, And in this way, I saw that in... um, 
each of my understandings of biopower um, or the theories of biopower in a colonial context um, for each of the three chapters. I'd like to continue talking about uh, bio, biopower, but uh, shifting a little bit more to your conclusion, which uh, brings us uh, from the 19th century to the uh, 20th century. And you end the book by inviting us to think of financial conditions such as debt and austerity as uh, tools of biopower in our present moment. And I love how you continue uh, the parallels between uh, India, Jamaica, and Ireland in your conclusion by pointing out how all three of those places were uh, crippled by uh, loans from the the IMF and uh, the World Bank. Uh, So what does or what can uh, rebellion or a revolting body look like today with these uh, adapted forms of biopower? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the conclusion, I think, is um, sort of my attempt to uh, address everything uh, sort of to continue the discussion on the three rebellions, but also address um, sort of a glaring absence uh, from the uh, body of the book from the three chapters, which is uh, essentially sort of the absence of women as uh, historical agents and as rebels. Um, and unfortunately, um, much of the discussion or the text on the rebellions themselves either uh, foreclose women's role within them or uh, neglect a discussion of them or just uh, erase them altogether. Um, and I think you know future work would very productively sort of try to reinsert them into that historical narrative. Since I wasn't able to um, address sort of women's roles there, I was interested in thinking through the ways in which um, women were also, uh, as historical subjects or as historical agents, were also uh, conditioned by these very things which I saw going on uh, in the 19th century, um, and they're conditioned by them in the 20, 20th, 20th and 21st centuries in similar but different ways. Um, so in the conclusion, I aim to show how these 19th century forms of resistance against the transformation of revolting bodies into laboring subjects continues today in a different form under neoliberalism, um, rather than under industrial capitalism, as um, had been the case in the 19th century. Um, And I do so through the concept metaphor um, in the conclusion of the reproductive disposable woman. And so the reproductive disposable woman, um, I contend, is sort of the new uh, laboring subject of our uh, neo or maybe even post-neoliberal era. Um, and so in this chapter, I draw from um, Marxist feminist thought, um, and I'm sort of interested in even newer and more invasive regimes of biopower. So these newer and more invasive regimes of biopower, of course, impose themselves um, in the form of austerity measures, um, you know, as you mentioned before, um, in the form of loans, um, to the state itself, the uh, post-colonial state um, by the World Bank or the IMF. Um and the way in which those loans are, and the restructuring of the post-colonial economy um, affect both the uh, economy at a macroeconomic level, but also um, individuals' own uh, lives and livelihoods uh, through austerity measures. Um, and so I talk about, uh, uh, or I mentioned farmer suicides, for example, um, in India uh, within the last few decades, uh, which have you know been linked to... Um, uh, the rise of um, 
agribusiness and uh, the lack of um, the the forced use of um, uh, genetically modified seeds and um, the uh, the pressure placed upon f- farmers um, who uh, don't have the support networks um, to sort of make a living from uh, the land anymore. Um, but I'm also interested in the ways in which these new invasive regimes of biopower um, act not only in terms of austerity, but also in terms of women's lives more specifically. And so um, that are invested in women's reproductive roles. And so I'm, I look here at um, biopower in terms of uh, biological reproduction, um, especially um, since India in the post-colonial era um, has been sort of one of the uh, premier places for uh, foreign surrogacy. Um, and so women um, who, uh, essentially poor women, um, have been um, uh, paid to act as surrogates for uh, foreign uh, people looking um, uh, for uh, offspring. And so um, uh, this last chapter is um, interested in uh, sort of the the different forms that biopower now takes, Um, you know, in terms of austerity measures in the post-colonial state, but also in terms of sort of reproduction um, and the reproductive capacities or the reproductive um, uh, pressures placed on women. So on the note of uh, new horizons uh, for future work, uh, I'd like to begin wrapping up our conversation by asking you to talk a little bit about what you're working on now. Uh, Sure. Uh, So my new project actually draws from this uh, or is an extension um, in some ways or maybe more a continuation and expansion on some of the concerns that um, animated my discussion in the conclusion um, to revolting bodies laboring subjects. So the conclusion, um, as I said, is interested in women's uh, reproduction, um, uh, especially as it... um, place out under uh, a new regime of biopower. Um, and, um, you know, in that conclusion, I looked at um, a speculative fiction play um, that, uh, you know, sort of examines, um, you know, women's, uh, you know, women being harvested for their reproductive abilities. So my new project sort of um, is, you know, uh, takes that as a springboard. And, you um, this new project, which is sort of tentatively titled Reproductive Value, um, a term that's used in demography studies to indicate a woman's future contribution to the population, um, focuses on the question of value as it's related to the appropriation of women's labor, um, both uh, social and biological, so their reproductive labor in both senses, um, and its relationship to environmental change, um, or actually what we've come to think of recently as environmental collapse. Um, and by the environment, I mean sort of the built environment, but also what we think of as the quote-unquote natural environment. Um, so uh, it's sort of still at the formative stages, but uh, I plan to sort of draw on a variety of texts, short stories, novels, uh, poetry, plays, uh, prints uh, about female IRA agents uh, during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, 
um, African women transported on the slave ship, the Zong, uh, which was heading to the Caribbean during the 1780s and which became infamous uh, for the massacre of well over 100 slaves en route. Right. Lower caste and uh, class Indian women before and during the Declaration of Emergency Law in 1978 and 1975 and the forced sterilization campaigns um, during that era. And then um, also the missing and uh, murdered indigenous women and girls um, in the U.S. and Canada uh, that have sort of uh, been um, uh, sort of subjects of investigation by the Canadian government recently. Um, so I'm interested in all of these um, sort of historical contexts and the text produced um, in those contexts and about those contexts to think through this idea of uh, sort of women and reproduction um, and value um, sort of related to environmental change. So it's it's sort of at a very tentative stage right now, but that's that's where the new project is headed. Awesome. That sounds great. I mean, I love how you're looking not only at different historical contexts, but also, you know, continuing uh, the work that you've done in in the book we're talking about today in terms of uh, looking at multiple geographic contexts. Yeah, it should be exciting. I'm looking forward to working on it. Awesome. Can't wait. Uh, so uh, we've been talking about the book uh, British Empire and the Literature of Rebellion, Revolting Bodies, Laboring Subjects. Uh, thank you, Latha, for such a great conversation about your work. Thank you so much. 